Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. And then we look at the justified life. What does the justified life look like? When you know the approval of God is upon you, what does that functionally do in your life? And the two big areas that we're going to look at that Solomon brings us to is marriage and work. And you may say, well, I'm not married. Well, you do have to work. And most of us in here are married. Most people are going to be married. And if you're not married, then you are having to work. Everybody has to work. And so these two big categories that we look at, marriage and work, are going to be applicable to everybody in, in, in your unique way. And so questions about life, hope in the land of the living, justif- justification, and then the justified life, because justification changes everything. Look at verse 1. We start with questions about life. But as all this I laid to heart, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. Now verse 2 is going to bring some explanation into verse 1 and to clarify a little bit what's going on in verse 1. But let's make a few observations before we, we quickly move on. Both the righteous and the wise... As persons and their deeds are in the hand of the Lord. There is no creature on this earth, nor any image bearer on this earth, that is outside of the hand of the Lord. We've all sung the song when we were young, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. That is a deep theological truth. There are secondary causes, there are crazy things that happen, but everything that exists and every person that exists, whether good or evil, they are in the hand of the Lord. Now, in a different way, they're in the hand of the Lord. The Christian is in the grip of Jesus and in the grip of our our Heavenly Father. The non-Christian cannot lay claim to those promises, but the non-Christian needs to know that their deeds and their lives are also in the hand of God. Nobody escapes the hand of God. And the king, King Solomon, the preacher, he knew this. Everyone will be held in account. Everyone's deeds are before the Lord. He knows every action. There is nothing that escapes him. There's nothing that catches him by surprise. There's nothing that he doesn't see that happens in every nook and cranny of this earth. He sees it all. And every single sin, every single evil, vile, wicked action that's ever happened that has been, that's been missed by the authorities, that the justice system has missed, they haven't seen, that somebody got away with, God saw it, and they won't get away with it. Every deed, every action, every thought is in the hand of the Lord. The king knows this. And everyone right now, everyone is in God's hand. He's got the whole world in his hands, whether it's love or hate. The, again, verse 2 is going to clarify this. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Uh, what happens in life, Solomon wants to know, is it attributed to the love of God or the hatred of God? The wrath of God or the love of God? And, and there are some that say that if God exists, he can't be good because of all the evil in the world. And they attribute everything that happens in this world and everybody's evil deeds in this world. And they say, well, God must be evil. God must be powerless. And there's a, 
uh, it's kind of a catch-22 that the atheist will get into. And they say, you know, if God is all-powerful and, and he's able to do something about the evil in the world and he doesn't do it, well, then that means that God can't be good. So he, he must not exist. Either, he's either evil or he doesn't exist. One of the two. Pick your poison. And that's what the a- atheist shamefully cries. Some say he exists, but he's not good. Now, others cry out to God, and they look at the world and the way it is, and they don't say it's God's love, or they, they don't say it's God, God's hate. They just run to God, and they cry out because of the suffering of the world. Now, both the good person and the bad person are before God. Now, verse 2 is going to explain a little bit more what he means. Look at verse 2. It is all the same. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and And to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. So the saga continues. Solomon's questions continue on chapter by chapter. The same event happens to everyone in life. And Solomon in this, in this section of Ecclesiastes has his, his foot in two different worlds. It's like he's remembering back to the time that he had questions, but he also is holding on to his, his, uh, his theistic worldview, his understanding that God that is above the sun does exist. And so he's kind of swimming in two worlds, and he's asking these questions, and it's almost like he's going back and forth in his mind, asking these questions, but believing in God, and, and yet, yet empathizing or sympathizing with the atheist who's rebelling against God. The saga continues. Everyone dies. And as Solomon's making his observation, he's he's looking at the good person and the bad person and then connecting the dots to say, both of them die. They both end up dead and in the grave. The one who's done good, the one who's done evil, the clean and the unclean, the one who sacrifices, you could say the religious person, and the one who does not sacrifice or the non-religious person, the good person, the sinner, The one who swears, the one who doesn't swear, the same thing in the end is going to happen to them all. And so what is that thing? Well, that thing is death. Everybody ends up dying. This is something that Solomon really wants us to know. He wants us to be face-to-face with death. He wants us to think about the reality of what's coming for us in the future. The future is uncertain except for death. We know that death is coming for us all. Death is evil. It's bad. It's a part of the curse. Now, there is a psalm in Psalm 139, precious to the Lord is the death of his saints, um, or 119, or it's in the psalms, precious to the Lord is the death of his saints. That for the, for the Christian, death is a little bit different than it is for the non-Christian. But it is inevitable that death comes to us all. Look at verse 3. This is an evil that I've seen under the sun, that the same event happens to all. The same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts where they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Uh, There is an uh, an inevitability about death. And there are people now that over the last 10 or 15 years have been using this nitrogen stuff, this really cold, probably not nitrogen, but this really cold stuff that freezes a body. And they've been this uh, cryogenics or something like that, that that freezes a body. And the idea is that one day, if this live person can be unfrozen, that they can they can unlock the key to eternal life. And in the general public, there has been this this drive, this desire to live longer, to live longer than the human being can actually live, to escape death, to somehow escape the inevitable. And Solomon's making this observation that still holds true. With all our technological advances, death still comes to everyone, still comes to all. And it can't be escaped. 
so Solomon's going to bring these themes again and again. He wants us to see life as it is. He doesn't want us to hide. He doesn't want us to bury our foot, our head, excuse me, our, our head in the sand. He wants us to see things as they are, reality as it is. And then, as a side note, it's almost like he's putting in here, and oh, by the way, everybody dies, and by the way, uh, even though there are some that appear to be good, um, everyone's evil. And he has this grim look. We can say that this is his curmudgeon side coming out or that his uh, um, uh, cantankerous side coming out, but this is the reality of the universe. He said the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Solomon is going to tell us the reason why Netflix is trying to normalize pedophilia. Or why Cardi B has the number one song in America called WAP, and she gets to interview Joe Biden. It's because the human heart is full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. Solomon's making an observation that's still very relevant for today. There's a twisted nature to human beings that, that people try to suppress and clean up. And one of the evidences of the sinfulness of humanity is how vehemently humanity tries to deny it. And convince everybody that, that humans are generally altruistic, they're good, they're going to do the right thing, they're going to give the shirt off their back. And then Netflix does this, and somehow, new media critics, if you don't know what I'm talking about, there's this movie Cuties, and it's, it's terrible, and don't see it. But you can look up what people are talk, saying about it, and it's just evil, and it's vile. But let's get personal for a minute, and let's move out of media and TV and the things that are just blatant and evil. And let's just go to our own heart. As people that are men and women who've been transformed by the power of the gospel and have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. And everybody here that's a believer, if, if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you. And you're being transformed from one degree to glory to the next. You, you're, you're being transformed. You're becoming more and more Christ-like. And yet, even among people who have the Spirit of God, even as a Spirit-filled Christian, do you know what you are capable of? Solomon says, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Now, we are people who have been given a new heart. We have been born again. Our, our, we've been regenerated. Our heart is now filled with the presence of the living God, and now the Spirit of God is working in us. And yet, even though that is absolutely true, your potential can be really dark really quick. How quick can you go to a dark place? Have you in a moment, I mean in a moment, have you surprised yourself where your mind has gone? Like, whoa, where did that come from? Or in it just that anger just rises up inside of you and you thought, man, I thought I'd slayed that dragon and there it is. Where in, in, in a moment, you're going from singing a song, praising God for his glory, looking at that sunset, being so excited about seeing your children, your grandchildren, your husband, your wife, and just thinking about how great life is. And in a split second, you're thinking about murder. You're thinking about driving that terrible driver off the road. You're thinking about something you didn't think you would think about. I mean, do you know, how, you know what your potential is? And one of the reasons we, one of the reasons we can know that, uh, one another reason we can know that humanity is so messed up is we think that our potential is only to the positive. We think about human potential. The the wave of popular opinion is that human potential is for really really good things and amazing things and noble purposes and really great pursuits. And the Christian knows, no 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 no, the human potential is really really dark. 
And even the best of the human beings that we know can go to a really dark place really quickly. Even those who have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. Do you know your potential? Um, your potential is, is pretty dark. How quick David, the man after God's own heart. David, the man after God's own heart. A man that we still look to. A man in whom the Spirit of God worked. God's man, his king. God, who looks at the heart and not at external appearances, says, it's David. He's the one. Right? Don't you have another one? There's not one here that I want. Jesse, where's, where's your... Is, do you have any more sons? Yeah, but he's just a puny kid in the field. Uh, no, God doesn't look at external appearances. He looks at the heart. And this man, the man after God's own heart, David, in moments of weakness, in moments of darkness, what does David do? He plots murder and does it to have a woman who's not his wife. It's David. And you begin to think, okay, if the human potential is that great, like what, what is it that is preserving me right now from doing something really, really terrible? You know, in our mind, we always have somebody, <laughs> when I was growing up, you know, when, when you have somebody that uh, is on your, in your mind, if you have an area of struggle and you know somebody personally that struggles worse than you, you can always just say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. Or at least I'm not as bad as that girl. Or at least I don't struggle this way or that way. There's, there's, there's kind of like this internal barometer we have, or at least I'm not as bad as, at least I'm not as this or that. We kind of find a way to pat ourselves on the back a little bit, encourage ourselves a little bit. But here's David, and when we come to, um, when we come to the gospel of Jesus, we, we realize the standard isn't our neighbor. The standard is God himself. And you start to think about human atrocities and the vileness of Adolf Hitler. And Hitler's always the guy that's just, he's just the most evil person in the history of the world. Everybody just goes to Hitler and says, yeah, Hitler's evil, evil. But if we only t think about evil in terms of things that are in the periphery or things that are in, in the past or things that are down the road from us and not ask, what's going on in my heart? Then we're going to be people who are always more frustrated at other people's sins than we are our own. And friends, the pathway to legalism, the pathway to not giving others grace is turning your nose up to others and giving yourself a pass. If you're more frustrated with the sins of other people than you are your own, you're going to be an angry, bitter person. And your holiness, your growth in Christ will be stunted because you have your eye on everybody else and you're not acquainted with your own frailty. What keeps you? What keeps you from going to a place that's dark? But by the grace of God, there go I. God is gracious. And Solomon, not talking about Christians in this moment, just talking about the heart in general, begins to say, there, there's hope, okay? There's hope for you, though. There's hope in the land of the living. There's hope. There's doesn't look like there's hope, but there's actually hope. There's not hope under the sun, but above the sun, there's hope. And he, he does his thing. He does his preacher thing. He begins to call our attention upward. And he starts to give us a glimmer of direction or a glimmer of hope. Look in verse 4. But he who is joined with the land of the living has hope. Hope. Okay, now let's connect that word hope, that hope with everything he's just said beforehand. We don't know if, God, if everything that happens is, out of, is from God's love or if it's from God's hate. We know that everybody ends up at death. It's just dreary. And then, by the way, we also know that the human heart is very evil. And it's, it's madness. They're, they're madness in their heart. 
And then he said, but there's hope. How is there hope? There's hope in the land of the living. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. A living dog is better than a dead lion. What what in the world does he mean? If you're alive, even though mankind is evil, there is hope. This is the hope of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That nobody, if you're living, we can't say anybody is too far. You're not too far. Neither is your dad, neither is your mom, neither is your cousin, neither is your sister, neither is your brother. Neither is your son, neither is your daughter. Nobody is too far. There is hope for those who are living, even if they're a low-down, dirty dog. Now, in the ancient world, a dog was not somebody that you buried in your backyard. A dog was something you ate. <laughs> right? You don't know that. dog is food. You look at your pet, Rover, and you're like, oh, my gosh, that sounds terrible. We literally call that dog our third or fourth child. Weirdo. <laughs> dogs, we love dogs. Well, in the ancient world, a dog was, a, was, a, a, was like a, a low animal in the food chain. A dog was not something that everybody loved and named and just you know, cared for in the way we do today. They, they weren't making clothes for dogs. The lion, on the other hand, has always been like the horse, a dignified animal, an animal of honor. You look at the lion, and you can't help but stand in awe. You see its mane. You see it walk. That's why I love C.S. Lewis for the imagery of the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia is Aslan, the, the lion. Lion was an honorable creature. A dog was dishonorable. And in the land of the living, there is hope for both. Those that look at the honorable lion and say, that's a man of honor. That's a woman of honor. There's hope for that person. The woman, the man or woman that you look at and there's a dishonorable man or woman, the dog feature, the dog character in, in Solomon's words, there's hope for that person. There's hope in the land of the living. But after death, there is no hope. We put the nail and the hammer and we go to purgatory and we just nail that thing and say there is no purgatory and there is no life after death. There is no hope of life after death other than in Christ. Um, after death, it's over with. You don't have an opportunity. And it's a hopeless situation after death. That's what Solomon says. Look at verse 5 and 6. For the living now know that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. After death, there's no more hope. In the living, those who are alive, they know death is coming and they can prepare for it. And so if you're here and you hear me say, death's coming, it's coming your way. I don't know when it's coming, but I know that it is coming then your neighbor, your friends, your co-workers, your family members, your son, your daughter, there's hope, there's still hope that in time, by God's grace, they will trust in Christ, they will be saved, they will look above the sun, they will see the God of the universe at work. But if you're dead, there's nothing left for them to do. There's no hope. It's all over. Uh, let, me, let me get sober really quick with you. Um, some of you know people that have passed away that don't that did, passed away not knowing the Lord, and sometimes we don't like thinking about that. We we just we don't want to hover there. We don't want to think about it because of it's just difficult thinking about God's wrath, thinking about hell, thinking about people not coming and trusting in Christ. And 
Um, for those that you know that have moved on, that don't, didn't know the Lord, there's no hope of heaven for them. And I want that truth to be used in our lives for us to turn our eyes horizontally and look at people who do not know the Lord. There's hope now, but if they die, there's no hope. There's no hope for them. And you may say they do dishonorable things. They're not living a life. They're, they're running from God. Running from God can look in many different ways. It can look like morality and self-righteousness, or it can look like the prodigal, running, partying, hedonism. But if they're alive, there's hope. And after they're dead, they're no, there's no hope. And many of you know people, friends, family members, who have died without the Lord. Um, Solomon doesn't shy away from saying there's no hope for them. But that should change how we live now. It should launch us on mission to tell people about Jesus. To thank God for His grace that we've enjoyed. In verse 6, we find it's all over. They cannot get back to the land of the living. There's no such thing as a second chance after death. It's almost like there's an attention moment, like attention all who are alive. Do something now. Submit to God now. Trust in Him now. Surrender now while there's hope. And we think about this thing called faith. How can somebody take advantage of being alive? How can somebody be alive and not waste their life? And Solomon is going to do something here that's, I think, pretty astounding. He's going to give us some extraordinary news. He's going to give us some news that he's not got to yet in the exact same way he's getting to it now. Um, it's, it's otherworldly. It's not found in any ancient religion, any modern religion other than Christianity. He's going to talk to us about faith. Faith in the land of the living. The reason there's hope for the dog... And more hope for the living dog than the dead lion, because the dead lion has no hope. There's hope for the living dog. is because of this thing called faith. Uh, this is the nearest, one commentator says, this is Michael Eaton. This is the nearest the preacher will come to the doctrine of justification by faith. Another commentator, Jeff Myers, said, Solomon is teaching us justification by faith. Indeed, he is teaching us justification by faith apart from works, for those are all a vapor. Enter faith. Enter justification. Enter approval. There's hope because there's this thing called justification. Or, as Solomon puts it, there's this thing called approval. The approval of God. How can evil, vile men get the approval of God? Look at verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Talk about a verse that seems like it's out of left field. What are you talking about? God has already approved of what you do. You've just been talking about the evil heart of, human, human, of humanity, of mankind. You've been talking about the mad madness of people and the confusion of life. But now you're saying this joy business again? Eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, and God has already approved of what you're doing? And when I think about this word approval, God, future approval, God has already approved, approved of what you do. 
already. There's this prior thing that leads to a future reality, approval. If God already approves of what I do, then somehow or another, if that's true, if that's true, God approves of me and what I do, then there can be joy in the simple things like eating and and drinking. Approval from God that's in the future tense. Now, some of you, if you follow me on Facebook, you've noticed that I said something that uh, a few days ago. I said that Christianity is the only religion in the world, the only religion in the world that puts justification on the front end. And because of that, you can know right now that you're right with God. Every other global religion, and even sects within Christianity, the Catholic Church doesn't promise assurance in this lifetime. The scriptures do. And you can know right now that you're right with God. Future approval that the God of the universe has approved of me through the grace of God and through the mercy of Jesus Christ, through the blood that was spilled for me. And I can know that I know that I know that God is pleased with me. That I have approval. That I don't have to wait till I die to find out if I've done enough. Every other religion in the world says, maybe. Christianity says you can know right now the approval of God. That's why there's hope in the land of the the living. Approval before death. You can know that you're right with God now. And if that future approval is secure, what does that do for the person right now? Friends, even the works, your works are acceptable to God. Now, hear me say this, because we're good Protestants here, and you hear me preach about works not being salvific. But this says that you're, what, what God has already approved of what you do. These are actions. Now, certainly, when we use the whole Bible, our sinful actions are not approved by our Heavenly Father. But we're told that we're approved, like that, that our actions, what we do is approved. Now, here's what's so amazing. We as Christians are saved by the work of Christ and the work of Christ alone. And yet, because of the work of Christ, our imperfect and even feeble works, done in an imperfect and feeble way, from a heart that loves God and that's grateful for God's grace to us, He accepts those works that He prepared in advance for us to walk in. He accepts them because of Christ. It's like, I've used this analogy, or heard this analogy before, I think it's so helpful. When a child brings you something they've made for you on a Sunday after church, it's not, it's not a piece of art that, that could, could earn and garnish millions of dollars. When your child gives you something they've made at school and you put that on the refrigerator, it, it's not something, it's beautiful, you love it, it's amazing, but it, it's not going to go to some art show and bring in a bid at $1.5 million, right? It's just not. But your child... And you love the gift that was given to you. And friends, when we go out living our lives, God has approved of our works. He has made our works acceptable to him, imperfect and sinful as they at times may be. Have I ever loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, or strength? No. But by God's grace, when I spend time with him in the morning, even though my time spent with him is imperfect, he approves of my works because of what Christ has done for me. Future approval. You can know right now that you're made right with God. Now, I want to connect some of these words because um, gratitude, gratitude is the secret sauce of life, if you don't know. And not just in a worldly, non-Christian sense. Gratitude is the secret sauce of life. It's a life to live. If you want to live the life to the glory of God, it seems kind of like an ethereal idea. How do you live life to the glory of God? Be thankful for his grace and you will. You'll obey and honor him. Live a thankful and a gratuitous life, and you're bringing glory to God. Future approval gives you this gratitude. 
It, it, it does something for the individual who's received it. When you know that the future approval of God is upon you, it lifts the burden that you're carrying off of your back and it brings joy and gratitude even in the mundane. Think about the words that are used and think about these words as it relates to biblical concepts. And we're going to see how supernatural and radical this text is. When Jesus says in John chapter 5 that the scriptures are about him and that people are refusing to come to him that they may have life, he says all the scriptures they speak of me yet you refuse to come to me. The scriptures are about him. In Luke 24, Jesus takes the, 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 the disciples that were on the road to, to Emmaus with him, and he walks with them, and he un, unpacks for them. He tells them about all the scriptures and how all the scriptures are about him. And he points it out. See that? That's about me. That's about me. That's about me. And I can imagine on that dusty road, him turning and, and saying, hey, you remember in Ecclesiastes? You know, it's kind of a confusing book. Hey, you know, I, this is about me. I'm the one from above the sun. I'm the wisdom from above that came down from heaven to save those who are under the sun. Think about these words, bread and wine. Eat your bread and drink your wine with a merry heart. Bread and wine. What do we do when we come to the Lord's table every week? Bread and wine. What about... Verse 9, these words, garments be white and lacking no, no oil on your head. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. These are present metaphors to the people who are reading this book, but they're also eternal metaphors telling us about the things of God, about the cross of Christ, about the work of Christ, about justification by faith. Garments of white in Revelation stand for righteousness. We've been clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. Oil is used for healing. We, by God's grace, through the power of Jesus, eternally will receive a, a, a resurrected body. We will be healed from all of our physical ailments eternally. The oil of gladness. We get, pray, we, we get joy in Christ. These terms, these words communicate to us truth about justification by faith. Approval on the front end is wisdom from above. Now, th these words came to Solomon through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to point us into another world. Because it wasn't found anywhere else in ancient literature. Nothing like verse 7 through 10 exists anywhere else in the ancient world. And they exist nowhere in the present world. Other than... The scriptures. Approval on the front end is wisdom from above. Now, the naysayers of God's grace, the naysayers of present approval and assurance of salvation say this. If you give people assurance that their future works are approved of, they're going to use that and they're going to be like those grace abusers in the book of Job or in the book of Jude. And they're going to use that approval. They're going to use that assurance for all sorts of sensuality and sexuality and sin. And they're going to just abuse God's grace. And certainly those who don't understand God's grace, certainly those people who want to use and just say, yeah, yeah, I'm saved, I got the ticket, will do that. They're in the scriptures, but they have no idea about the grace of God. Those who are born again, who have the spirit of God, you can't help but be grateful. If you've never been grateful your salvation, for your salvation, friend, you probably never experienced it. If you've never seen your sin, it's a big deal. If you've never seen verse 3, 
then the cross of Christ will never be a big deal to you. If you think your sin was small, you'll never see the cross as big. The work of God will just be as big as your sin is small. But if you know your cosmic rebellion that you're walking in and swimming in, and if you know that God saved you and gave you assurance before you die, that he rescued you and redeemed you, and you can't help but be grateful. I think Christ is seen right here in Ecclesiastes. The work of Christ changes everything in a person's life. We use the word approval for justification. It's the exact same concept. God approves of you, your name, because of what Christ has done for you, if you're in Christ. And now that changes how you live. Now what Solomon's going to do here is he's going to connect the dots. Future approval changes current actions. And that's what he expects. Solomon, he sounds very much like the Apostle Paul, or very much like Jesus when he gives the parable of the unforgiving servant. And how ridiculous it would be if, you, if you've been forgiven of much, and you go out and you demand from others without giving grace. It's, it's, it's asinine. It's crazy. How could you, who's received so much grace, not therefore give it? Solomon's preaching, just like the scriptures teach, he's preaching what approval, future approval does in your present. And he's going to use two big examples of this. He's going to show how this approval affects marriage and work. Marriage and work. Joe, listen up. You're going to be married soon. Marriage and work. Let's look at marriage. Verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Now, pause real quick. Vain has three primary meanings in the book of Ecclesiastes, and the context determines each one. And in this thing, in this meaning of vain, it means breath, or it means quick. It doesn't mean vain like meaningless. In other places in the book of Ecclesiastes, it means meaningless. But this means a breath. It means it's, it's very, very fast, very quick. In your quick or vain, vaporish life. That he has given you under the sun. Let's read that again because I stopped. Enjoy your life with the wife in whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Marriage and work are central to life. Everyone works and most people will get married. And here's what Solomon says is, is the portion of those who are married. Enjoy life with your wife. Life goes quick. Goes quick. And life can be very hard. And Solomon says, with those two things being a reality, life's quick and there's toil, there's work, it's hard. Enjoy your wife. That's your portion. In the toil of life, enjoy your wife. Men, you may say, well, my wife is the reason for my toil. Wives, you could say, if this was directed to you, the husband is the reason for my toil. Solomon says, men, enjoy your wife. Don't complain about your wife. Love her and enjoy her. That's our portion. When you understand the gospel of Jesus, you begin to understand marriage. And the hard part is always implementing this. God is so much more gracious than we are. Uh, marriage is this picture of the gospel, the two becoming one flesh. And then we walk in our life as a husband or in your life as a wife unconditionally. I'm loving my wife regardless if she's nice, mean, 
and fortunately, I've married a great, nice wife. Thank you, baby. Um, but her actions do not determine God's command to me to love her. It's unconditional. I don't get to say, yeah, but she's being mean to me, or she's not being nice to me, or she's not doing what I want her to do. It doesn't matter. It, it, it's, it's a moot point. It doesn't matter. Love her. And wives are given this command in Ephesians 5 to respect their husbands. Well, he's being mean. He's not respecting. So, respect your husband. It goes both ways. It's unconditional. The gospel of Jesus begins to unlock this picture of marriage where we are to do what God has called us to do unconditionally. And then we are to give each other grace, love, and respect. And men, our wife is our portion in this life. She is a gift. And Solomon brings us to these two big ideas, marriage and work, to say, this is what you need to enjoy. Turn your attention to what God has given you. She's a gift. Never view her as a curse. Ever. Or somehow in your way to your happiness. The man gets to lay his life down. His leadership includes death to self. I wish it was as easy to live out as it is to preach. Selfishness dies over decades. She's our portion. Wives, we could say, don't make it hard for your husbands to enjoy you. But husband, it's no excuse if your wife's a nag. Solomon speaks to the naggy wife, and so should every preacher, by the way. And Solomon speaks to men who are walking in rebellion to him, rebellion to God, who are not loving their wives. The onus, the direction here is to men, even if your wife is naggy, who cares? Love her and enjoy her. Find ways to enjoy your wife. A lot of this is attitude. Maybe you're going through a rocky road in your marriage. I don't know. I think there's a lot of strong marriages here. Um, at least appears to be. Men, if you won't take Solomon's advice here and start enjoying your wife, the decades that you have, the rest of the life that you have, it's going to be really hard. It's going to be really hard. Enjoy your wife. She's God's gift to you. Love her well and enjoy her. Then he begins to talk about work. Say, well, I'm not married, okay? You're a worker. Look at verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. I love this verse. In your toil, work hard. Whatever you find yourself doing, give it everything you have. Uh, laziness is not a reward. Doing something halfway is not a reward. Doing something the easy way is often, in my life, it's been just the just enough way. Do it, fix it just enough. There's a lot of things I don't know how to do. I'm married into a family, and I always talk about Dennis, but Dennis just knows how to do. He, can, he knows how like batteries, he knows how everything works, and I don't know how everything works. And it's hard, so sometimes instead of researching, instead of picking up the call and picking up the phone and asking questions, instead of getting on YouTube and figuring it out, I'll do something halfway. And it's not satisfying. It's annoying to my family. And 
my wife, you know, is like, what in the world? Just do it right. You know, I'll call my dad. <laughs> she does not say that. But doing something halfway doesn't reap rewards. And Solomon said, hey, in, in this life, when you are certain of God's approval of your works, go out and work hard. Don't just say, well, God's going to approve. Why does it matter? Go put your hand to the plow, sweat, get you a big glass of water, and put your hand to the plow. Work. Whatever you have to do, what's ever in front of your Sunday or your Monday or your Tuesday, you wake up and through the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, crush it. Go for it. Don't halfway do anything. Whole way do any, everything. Give 100%. Life is meant to be spent. N.D. Wilson, in his great, unique book, Death by Living, he says, death comes by living. We live life, and we exhaust ourselves through living because we're living for the glory of God. Work hard. Assurance gives you courage. Assurance of God's favor gives you grit. Assurance of God's love gives you fire deep down in your belly and your bones to work for God's glory with everything he's given you to do. Marriage and work. When you know that God's favor is upon you, it changes how you live in the present. And when you're looking at your life and thinking, man, I'm really miserable at marriage right now and I'm really being terrible at work right now, pause, take a few steps back and ask yourself, am I being a grateful man or a grateful woman for the grace of God, for his assurance that he has given me of my salvation? Am I thankful for his grace? Because I tell you what, failures in life usually can be traced back to not being grateful to God and his mercy to you. When you find yourself putting conditions on anybody and everybody for your benevolent actions towards them, you'll find that you have forgotten the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Trace it back, pause, say, God, what have you done for me in Christ? You've been kind to me. I am assured of your favor, even though I'm being a, well, I don't even know if like silly goose, that's like what we say around here. Even though I can't say word like, a, I don't know if, anyways, D-U-M-M-Y. Even if I'm being that or I-E, well, however you spell that word. Um, <laughs> however you spell dummy. Why? <laughs> uh, okay, thank you. Um, that God's favor is upon you in that ridiculousness. And yet you're laying all these demands and you're not putting your hand to the plow. Like, do, you know, do you know God's grace? Do you know his approval? Do you know his otherworldly love for you? Fortunately, his love is unchangeable even when our love is waning. Even when our grit and courage is lacking, he is strong enough to preserve he is strong, strong enough to keep. Look at verse 10b. For those that we know in this life who are living, it's now or never. Like it's, it's a now, life and death, it's a now or never thing. It's always a now or never thing. We're always preaching as preachers and as, as people who love Jesus and are walking around with the mission of God in their pocket and on their tongue. That, like life and eternity hangs in the balance. Like, right? Like people's lives. It, Vapor. I mean, they can die. You know how many millions of ways a human being can die? It's just astounding. Life is not promised. It's now or never. Look at verse 10b. 
Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. You know, when I first admit this passage this week, it took a while to unlock. And as you're studying and praying and wrestling through a text, um, you're, you're preaching, as you're preaching through books of the Bible, you're preaching through texts and passages that you've not ever preached through before. You may have studied it or read it, you know, you're reading through it. But you've not really pressed down, and every week I'm required to wrestle and pray. And any preacher of the gospel or preacher of God's word has to wrestle and just think, God, help me to understand this. You get commentaries, you talk to people, you ask, send out text messages, and then things begin to unlock. And admittedly, this verse is so weird. What do you mean there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going? That sounds very nihilistic or purposeless. It seems like there's nothing after death in the, in, in, in the place of the dead, which is Sheol, the place of the dead. It, what, what does that mean? No work, no thought, no knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, the place of the dead. Solomon, however, is not teaching us something that he's, uh, uh, the opposite of something he's been teaching us all along. Solomon is not teaching us that there is neither, that there is nothing on the other side. So it's just like a whole bunch of nothingness. We die and nothing was ultimately uh, purposeful at all. We just cease to exist. He's not teaching that. He's taught against that over and over again in this very book. But what he is saying is that the place of the dead, this kind of work that we're experiencing right now, this, this on this earth, okay, this until Christ returns, we get to live this life with unresurrected bodies only until Christ returns or calls us home and we won't get our resurrected bodies until he returns. But the way we're living life right now can only be lived once. And this kind of work, thought, knowledge, or wisdom will not be after we die. We get one life to live on this earth. It's now or never. Because this won't be able to happen when we're in the grave. But as long as you're living, as long as your family is living, there is hope that they can get right with God. As long as you are living, there is hope that you can actually start living. As long as you know the approval of God, there is hope that you can start living more obediently to Jesus today. So how do I know? Love your wife and enjoy her today. That's how you walk out these doors today. This week at work, don't be a lazy bum with anything that you have in front of you. Do, do the work and do it the right way. It does, the, the answer is not being a workaholic. The answer, the answer is not bloody calluses. But the answer is doing what God has done, doing what God gives you to do with all your might. That's how you can obey him today. Simple. By his grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit. As long as you're in the land of the living, you can get right with God. You can know the favor of God is upon you. As long as you're right with God, you can start enjoying life. In the movie Braveheart, I don't really think this is a William Wallace quote, but we'll just say it was William Wallace. He said, every man dies, but not every man truly lives. Everyone dies, but not everyone truly lives. And friends, there is hope. There is life in Christ. There is joy when you know the approval of God that cannot be found anywhere else in this world. And friends, most everybody in here knows that truth. You know that. So let's start just little steps of obeying and living the life that God is calling us to live to a greater and greater degree. 
And let's never give up hope for those who don't know the Lord. If they're alive, if there's breath in their lungs, they're not too far. And as far as we're concerned, we're going to keep telling them about Jesus and keep giving them Jesus and keep living obedient to him and keep letting them, look like, letting them see what life under the lordship of Christ looks like, that we're men and women who say whatever God says to me goes and see what God does. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that real practically... You would help us to walk in obedience, help us to respond to you. Lord Jesus, I thank you for all that you're doing, saving people in our midst. I thank you for what you've done in my son's life and the joy that I see in him. I thank you for what you're doing in our family's life with our new baby on the way. I thank you for what you're doing in our church's life. There's just so many neat things happening. God, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I pray that if there's anybody in here right now that does not know, that they don't have assurance that they don't know that your approval is upon them. They don't know that their sins are forgiven. I pray that they would God, I pray that they would trust in you today. I pray that they would repent of their sins, tell you they're sorry for doing things their way, and thinking that they know best, and that they would submit to you. And they would cry out for you to forgive them of their sins. In faith, believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for us, who, for those who know you in this room, Holy Spirit, help us real practically. These two big things that Solomon gives us. If we, if we know your approval, it's going to be evident in our life right now in the present. Then help us to walk obediently in marriage and in work. And Lord, if there's anything we need to repent of, help us to repent. And then keep our head up. Your, your favor is still upon us. And walk out of these doors and be more obedient to you by your grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lead us, I trust you will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.